On Thursday, the Department of Homeland Security announced its official revocation of President Obama's executive amnesty for illegal immigrant parents. According to the Associated Press, quote, Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly formally revoked a policy memo that created the Deferred Action for Parents of Americans program. The revocation came on the fifth anniversary of another effort that has protected hundreds of thousands of young immigrants from deportation. In reality, Obama's DAPA program, Deferred Action for Parent Arrival program, never took effect. The federal judge had stated, pointing out that Obama had exceeded his authority. It's unclear whether Trump is actually going to begin deporting more illegal immigrant parents, especially since Trump administration has continued to fight back against deportation of so-called dreamers. Actually, in the exact same memo announcing the revocation of DAPA, the Homeland Security Secretary said the deferred action for childhood arrivals would remain in place, breaking a key campaign promise. As Daniel Horowitz of Conservative Review pointed out last week, quote, Trump's DHS has issued almost 125,000 DACA cards per Obama's unlawful deferred action for childhood arrivals order to illegal aliens through the second quarter of this fiscal year, January through March. This surpasses the 122,000 level of amnesty cards issued during the final quarter of Obama's presidency, October 1st through December 31st, 2016, which means the Trump administration is not even slowing down the pace. Just last week, Kelly assured Congress we are not 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 targeting DACA registrants right now and pled with Congress to pass comprehensive immigration reform. So will the Trump administration actually begin keeping its commitment to begin deporting those Obama attempted to protect under DAPA? It's difficult to tell. That uncertainty is still a step up from the Obama administration's obvious unwillingness to consider deportation for entire classes of illegal immigrants. And Trump's vagary has had some predictable results. The number of people attempting to cross the border illegally has dropped dramatically. But there is no question that the Trump administration's open position on DACA is a new, shocking development for a president who pledged widespread deportations of illegal immigrants as a key campaign promise. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. I want to talk a lot about what's going on with President Trump's tweeting. I want to talk about what's going on with Rick. And my dad is going to stop by for the mailbag in just a little while. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Indochino. So Indochino is the place for custom men's suits. There is nothing that makes a guy look better than being in a custom tailored suit. Indochino.com makes that happen. You can first of all visit their showroom. I've been to their showroom. Uh, they've actually helped me figure out what to wear. They've shown what kind of fabrics work. They've shown uh, what the fit should look like. Indochino.com. You pick your fabric. You choose your customizations from lapels to pleats to jacket linings and more. You submit your measurements online or you can go to their store and they'll actually fit it for you. The tailor does the work. Or you can actually just be measured uh, by your your friends or family, and you can send those measurements into Indochino and get the best looking suit you will ever have. I actually just wore this suit on Fox News the other day. It's that nice. And right now, if you go to Indochino.com and you use Shapiro at checkout, that's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com right now, and you enter Shapiro at checkout, you can get any premium Indochino suit for just $379. That is 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. It's made from scratch, made just for you. This is not an off-the-rack that they're tailoring. This is made just for you. Again, Indochino.com, promo code Shapiro for any premium suit for just $379 and free shipping. Let me tell you, it's the best buy you will ever make when it comes to suits. I mean, an off-the-rack suit can cost exactly the same amount of money, but it isn't fit to you. Indochino.com makes that happen. Use that promo code, Ben, so that they know that we sent you. Again, it's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com. My favorite suit to wear, Indochino.com. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit, before we get to President Trump's Twitter, I want to talk about a problem that I see arising uh, on the right. And it's a mistake that's being made in response to the left being 
awful on issues of free speech. The left has been awful on issues for free speech for years. I should know when I speak on college campuses, I get protested. There are sometimes riots. I've been banned from college campuses. And the left uses a particular logic when it comes to this. The particular logic that the left uses when it comes to banning me is that words are violent. Words prompt violence, therefore we can't have Shapiro here. If Shapiro says that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, then that could prompt somebody to do something nasty to a transgender person, and therefore we have to ban Shapiro from campus. This was sort of the perspective at DePaul. If Shapiro says that Black Lives Matter is a negative movement that hurts black people, and he says that cops aren't deliberately murdering black people en masse, that hurts black people. Black people feel bad. And not only do they feel bad, maybe it will prompt some violence against black people in some unspecified way. Therefore, we have to keep Shapiro off of campus. Now, typically, the right has responded to this nonsense with mockery. Right? We call them snowflakes. We say this is microaggression culture. It's a bunch of nonsense. But now, because the left for so long has been blaming acts of violence, individual acts of violence on the so-called toxic climate created by the right, now the right finally has its chance to do the same thing to the left, and some people are unwilling to forego the revenge in favor of the actual principle, which is actually dangerous. If you are more interested in revenge on the left than you are in upholding a principle to prevent the left from winning, then you are doing something counterproductive. So in the aftermath of this Bernie Sanders supporting Trump-hating terrorist trying to shoot a bunch of Congress people and succeeding, Steve Scalise is still in apparently critical condition in the hospital. There are a lot of people on the right who have been making the mistake of essentially claiming that rhetoric causes violence, and not only does rhetoric cause violence, it's leftist rhetoric, and not just leftist violent rhetoric, which, okay, but leftist normal rhetoric, like stuff that exists in the realm of the normal. This is dangerous. So I think that you know the, the natural tendency after a horrible terrorist incident like this occurs is for everybody to come together. The problem is when the coming together is about civility and niceness, and then anytime somebody says something that is inflammatory or passionate about politics, you say, oh, shut that guy down, he might cause a nutcase to go and shoot somebody. You're starting to see this happen. So Scott Pelley over at CBS News, he says, violence almost always begins with words. This is going to be the new routine. Later at a lunch for reporters, President Trump was asked whether he worried that that language would incite violence. His pause indicated it had never crossed his mind. And then he said, no, that doesn't worry me. As children, we're taught words will never hurt me. But when you think about it, violence almost always begins with words. In Twitter world, we've come to believe that our first thought is our best thought. It's pastime for all of us, presidents, politicians, reporters, citizens, all of us, to pause to think again. Okay, so you can see why the left is doing this. Okay, so the left is saying this, the, the, the left is doing this because they specifically are interested in pressing forward the the right is uncivil, the right is terrible. How dare the right use the kind of language it's been using? Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi did a joint interview yesterday at the congressional baseball game in which they did a little bit of the same routine. How do you balance letting Republicans in your caucus uh, speak their minds while also setting uh, setting a role, a role, being a role model and saying, that's too far, you've gone too far, don't say that, which happens sometimes in, in both your caucuses. Well, sure. But I think all of us have a responsibility to watch our rhetoric, but we're, we're passionate. We believe passionately about our causes, about our issues, and we can do that without being vitriolic, without fomenting um, the kind of anger that's out there in the country. So that's what leaders do, and that's what members of Congress have in common upon them. To, to okay, that's all fine. This is all fine. This is all unified. But here's what's happened. The left has now turned to, okay, Trump's rhetoric is really dangerous. It's going to get people killed, 
right? Trump, the right, the rhetoric is going to get people killed. Here's Senator Richard Blumenthal, who is a radical leftist from Connecticut, making exactly this case. We need to seize this moment and tone down the rhetoric. I know that's easier said than done. And part of the problem is that the president is continuing the very visceral and vehement attacks instead of saying, as my colleague Senator Rubio said, that he welcomes a swift result and a fair result to this investigation. And again, it's amazing. A leftist shoots up a Republican congressional baseball practice, and the response is clearly that the Republican rhetoric is the problem, that the Republican rhetoric, and I can see why people on the right get angry at this, right? Jeff Flake did some of the same stuff yesterday. This is the senator from Arizona. He says that, you know, Trump should stop calling people losers. That's the real problem here. When you say you want the president to lead, is there something specific you think he could do that would maybe be a positive jolt to the system? Well, uh, things that he could stop doing, uh, you know, referring to others in the other party as losers or or using other language that just uh, isn't becoming. And I, I, it, it's done on our side as well, and certainly the president's opponents uh, use that kind of language. Okay, so the language police are here. So here's how the right should respond to the language police. What the right should say is what I said yesterday. Violent rhetoric is not okay. Defending violence is not okay. But passionate rhetoric, you know, the normal passionate rhetoric of every day, that stuff is not only okay, it's necessary in a republic. Okay, it's always existed in a republic. That doesn't mean that it's all factual. It doesn't mean it's all good. But it is necessary, and to pretend that it's going to stop is just, it's just a cudgel to wield against the other side. So Laura Ingram, I think, does this exactly wrong. Uh, this is going to be a rare situation in which I think that Laura Ingram is wrong and Nancy Pelosi is kind of right, which is just unbelievably shocking. And it just demonstrates how people on either side of the aisle, partisanship trumps principle. Here's Laura Ingram talking about leftist rhetoric and what she thinks causes violence. But it's, it's a level of, of viciousness and vitriol that... We see it on social media, but usually that's an anonymous thing. But now people are emboldened, and they're actually saying it in, in, in person. They're doing chalk drawings of people in their families on their driveways. So they wake up in the morning, and they see a chalk drawing. Uh, but I think Charles is right. This apocalyptic language we hear on other cable networks, where there are, these are supposedly very respected hosts who get up every morning and say, will our republic survive Donald Trump? Mm. In other words, the resistance is a <coughs> physical resistance. If you believe your survival is at, at risk it's almost you have a moral duty to physically resist that okay again this is so hypocritical and i'll explain why in a second nancy pelosi says the right needs to stop being sanctimonious about this stuff yes because i think the left should have stopped being sanctimonious about it years ago people should stop being sanctimonious about the idea that sarah palin putting a map on her website of congressional districts that she wants to target somehow leads to people dying the left should stop saying that talk radio leads to the Oklahoma City bombing, and the right should not imitate the left in an act of revenge. Here's Nancy Pelosi saying that the right is being sanctimonious. Yes, and the left should also stop being sanctimonious. And I think that the comments made by my Republican colleagues <clears throat> are outrageous, beneath the dignity of the job that they hold, beneath the dignity of the respect that we would like Congress to command. How dare they say such a thing? How dare they? Uh, well, I don't even go into the whole thing. I can't even begin. Probably as we sit here, running caricatures of me and, and uh, Georgia once again, we're in over $100 million of vitriolic things that they say that resulted in calls to my home constantly, threats in front of my grandchildren, uh, I mean, really predicated on their comments and their paid ads. 
So this sick individual does something despicable, and it was horrible what he did, hateful. But for them to all of a sudden be sanctimonious, as if they don't never seen such a thing before. And I don't even want to go into the President of the United States. Okay, and the reason that I think that she's not wrong here is because you heard Laura Ingram there say that this apocalyptic language we hear on other cable networks. Okay, I was alive six months ago. I remember when people on Fox News were saying on a routine basis that the world was going to end if Hillary Clinton was elected. In fact, this was the best argument in favor of President Trump. Okay, here is the fact. The most read essay of the last election cycle in right-wing intellectual circles was the Flight 93 essay in the Claremont Review of Books. We talked about it at the time. It was quoted breathlessly by everybody from Rush Limbaugh to Laura Ingram to Sean Hannity to my friend Dennis Prager. I mean, it was, it was quoted everywhere. And the basic idea there was that if Hillary Clinton was elected, that the plane of state would crash and everyone would die. It literally said in that essay, charge the cockpit or you die. Okay, Ann Coulter said that Hillary's election would be the, quote, end of America. Dennis said that America could, quote, never recover from her or any Democrat's victory. Ingram herself, who's talking about apocalyptic language, she wrote a piece two weeks ago, but two weeks before the election title, quote, how the elites blew up the world. Now, is my point that nobody should ever use language like this? No, precisely the opposite. My point is that this has always been the language of politics. It may not be right. I may disagree with this language. I may have thought that all those people were wrong about the last election cycle. And I may have thought their apocalyptic language was wrong. In fact, I did. I said that the Flight 93 essay was stupid and incoherent. But the fact is, nobody who read that essay actually thought that this was a Flight 93 election. Nobody thought if Hillary was elected, it was time to go pick up a gun and start shooting Democrats. Nobody thought that when Dennis said that America would never recover from Hillary's presidency, that that meant that it was time to go and violently uprise against the Democratic Party. When Ingram said the elites blow up the world, nobody actually thought that Trump should go out there and commit bombings in response. Right? We always use this kind of rhetoric. This rhetoric is not new. Okay, We've been using rhetoric like the war on drugs, the war on poverty. FDR targeted the, quote, malefactors of great wealth. This stuff goes back all the way in the American Republic, the, the language of, of people being enemies. But we all understand there's a baseline level understanding that we're not actually enemies. There's a difference between the Democrats with whom we argue and ISIS that actually wants to chop off our head. And I think that Republicans are making a huge mistake if they feed the snowflakes. Don't feed the snowflakes. Don't feed the snowflakes. Do not buy into the idea that is now being promulgated by the right because we want to stick the left's face in it, that rhetoric leads to violence. Normal political rhetoric that is edgy and passionate leads to violence. It is very difficult to claim that college campuses should allow people like me or Heather McDonald or Charles Murray or Ion Hersey Ali, let alone Milo Yiannopoulos, speak at the same time that you say the word resistance could cause violence. When Laura Ingram says, you know, the resistance, that means physical resistance. That's the dumbest crap I've ever heard. Okay, it's really stupid. No one in the resistance, or at least very few people in the quote-unquote resistance, think it's time to pick up a gun and start shooting people. If they do, they are outliers. There are truly violent people like Antifa. I don't want to lump in everybody who's on the other side of the aisle with Antifa because that's not fair and it's not right and it's begging, it is begging, for the next time somebody who has a mention of Sean Hannity in their manifesto or Laura Ingram in their manifesto, it is begging the left to do the exact same routine on us. That makes the political situation ugly or not better. It never gets more civil. It just uses civility as a club to beat the other side. And then we say, okay, well, you're beating us up, so we're going to be even less civil to you. It just leads to a downward spiral in both civility and the level of political discourse that is really, really, really stupid. Okay, before I go any further, I want to talk about 
President Trump, uh, he had a tweet storm this morning about obstruction. We're going to talk about whether obstruction is really on the table and the latest leaks. We're going to talk about all that. Plus, my father is going to stop by. My pops is going to stop by. And we're going to talk about our brand new book, Say It So, Papa, Dad, Me, and the 2005 White Sox Championship Season. We're going to do a mailbag uh, just with my dad. We have lots of questions from listeners who want to ha- ask my dad questions. But before we get to any of that, I first want to say thank you to our friends over at the United States Concealed Carry Association. So, This is a fantastic organization. They provide industry-leading firearms education, training, and self-defense insurance. If you are living in a state like California, or even not a state like California, and you have to shoot somebody in self-defense, good shot you're going to get caught up in some sort of legal turmoil. USCCA makes sure that you know what you need to know, and they help provide resources for your self-defense. They provide self-defense insurance so that you are covered legally. They're also about getting more guns into the hands of responsible, freedom-loving Americans. There's a story today about gun owners who were able to protect themselves from convicted murderers who had escaped prison because they were gun owners. Everybody who's a law-abiding citizen should have a gun and should know how to use it. That's what USCCA is there for. And right now, they have this really awesome deal. They are going to buy 10 of my listeners the gun of their dreams. That's right. You're about to get 10 chances to win $1,500 for any gun that you want. 10 chances to win $1,500 for any gun that you want. Go to defendmyfamilynow.com to enter defendmyfamilynow.com. It's a fantastic website. It's, it's Right now, they actually have a separate deal that says you can be one of five people who will win one thousand, even more money, $1,776 right now when you go and you register over at Defend My Freedom, uh, defendmyfamilynow.com, defendmyfamilynow.com. You can win $1,776 for the gun of your choice gun and ammo of your choice. Super awesome. One of five people will win. So five of my listeners can win $1,776 in honor of July 4th. It's the great American giveaway. July 4th, the deal is going to end soon. So you want to go and register right now. Defendmyfamilynow.com. Listen, you should be registered there anyway. You should be registered there in any case. Again, that's super cool. You get five chances to win at $1,776 off of you. $1,776. Be patriotic at a gun. Right, USCCA. Defendmyfamilynow.com. Uh, it's super, super cool program. Okay, so I want to discuss briefly what President Trump has been doing because there's a bunch of breaking news. The left, of course, is going nuts over new leaks. Um, but before we get to any of that, you're going to have to go over and become a subscriber over at dailywire.com. For $8 a month, you too can get a subscription to dailywire.com and you can be one of the cherished few who gets to participate in today's mailbag. I believe we're doing live mailbag today also. So if you have live questions and you register right now, you can be part of the mailbag. My dad is stopping by for the mailbag, which is super cool. You get the rest of the show live. You get the mailbag. Uh, you also get Andrew Clavin's show live. And we have lots more goodies coming up. We are planning a big rollout of some new programs for our subscribers. Plus, annual subscribers do right now get a free signed copy of Say It So, Papa, Dad, Me, and the 2005 White Sox Championship season. We will sign it for you. I will sign it for you. Uh, And it is a great Father's Day gift. Hundreds and hundreds of people have already done this, and uh, they are enjoying the book immensely. It's about fathers and sons in baseball, so it should be really cool. All right, if you don't want to register right now, if you don't want to subscribe right now, then you can always go over to iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a listen. We always appreciate the listenership, and you can subscribe over there as well. Make sure you leave a review. We appreciate that too. This is the largest conservative podcast in the United States. All righty, so I want to talk about what's going on with Trump. So, There is a Washington Post story that is out today that says that 
Trump's consigliere, Jared Kushner, is now under investigation for business ties. So there's a story on Wednesday that said that Trump was under investigation himself for obstruction of justice, and we talked about what that meant. And now there's a story that says that Trump's son-in-law is under investigation for his business ties. Here's what the story says, according to the Washington Post. Special counsel Robert S. Mueller, uh, Mueller, I guess it's pronounced the third, is investigating the finances and business dealings of Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and advisor, as part of the investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election, according to U.S. officials familiar with the matter. FBI agents and federal prosecutors have also been examining the financial dealings of other Trump associates, including former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, former campaign chairman Paul Manafort, and Carter Page, who is listed as a foreign policy advisor for the campaign. The Washington Post previously reported that investigators were scrutinizing meetings that Kushner held with Russians in December, first with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak and then with Sergei Gorkov, the head of a state-owned Russian development bank. At the time of that report, it was not clear the FBI was investigating Kushner's business dealings. So there's always been a lot of scrutiny on Kushner's business dealings. There were questions as to why he was meeting with a bank that was basically banned from making investments in the United States. It's been the subject of U.S. sanctions following Russia's annexation of Crimea. It's considered to be essentially a Russian cutout. Uh, it, the Russian bank has said the session was held for business reasons because of Kushner's role as head of his family's real estate company. So now Mueller is looking into all of this. And all of this has prompted Trump to go back on Twitter. Now, I know there are a lot of people who love President Trump on Twitter. They think it's the greatest thing in the world that President Trump is on Twitter. And right now they are citing a Rasmussen poll that says that Trump is just doing an incredible job, that he is up to 50% approval rating. I must point out in all conscience, in all good conscience, that this poll is a wild outlier, okay? I'm going to give you all of the latest polls on President Trump's approval rating. And this matters because we have a 2018 election that is coming up and coming fast. Right now, the average, the Real Clear Politics average, has him at 40% approve, 54% disapprove, a negative 14% spread. Okay, that's not even the worst. Gallup has him at 19 below right now, 38% approval rating. Rasmussen has him at 50, so I'm not sure where that 12-point gap comes from, but I will tell you, here are the approval ratings from other companies that are not Rasmussen. 38, 42, 40, 41, 34, 37. Okay, none of those are good for President Trump, and that's because Trump keeps making mistakes that are going to get him into more legal peril. Now, I've told you my theory of this. My theory of this, again, for the 1,000th time, is that President Trump was not involved in Trump-Russia collusion, that President Trump was annoyed that Mike Flynn's investigation wasn't being dropped, and that James Comey was, was still not willing to say publicly what he had already said privately, which is that Trump was not being investigated. Uh, he thought that Flynn was basically being subjected to the same sort of stuff and idiotically went to Comey and said, if you could drop that, that would be awesome, and went to a couple other people and said, if you drop that, that would, could be awesome, and then got mad at Comey because Comey wouldn't say publicly that he wasn't under investigation, fired Comey, and created this problem, this headache for himself. That's, that, I think, is the most credible, plausible theory about what Trump did. But here is what Trump tweeted today. Well, for, first, I must say that the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who you will recall as the guy who wrote a memo recommending to Trump that he fire the FBI director, and then Trump went on national TV and said that he wouldn't have listened to Rosenstein even if he'd said differently. It was just a pretext. He was going to fire. He was going to fire Comey anyway. Now he's released a statement. This statement was released yesterday. Quote, Americans should exercise caution before accepting as true any stories attributed to anonymous officials, particularly when they do not identify the country, let alone the branch or agency of government with which the alleged sources supposedly are affiliated. Americans should be skeptical about anonymous allegations. The Department of Justice has a long established policy to neither confirm nor deny such allegations. Presumably this is referring to the Kushner story. 
But it could also be referring to the story that Trump was under investigation himself for obstruction. Right? We don't know what it's referring to. And it seems like good advice. It's kind of weird that he released the statement. People thought maybe Rosenstein had been called by Trump and said, can you please put out a statement telling people not to pay attention to the news? But then Trump goes on Twitter. And Trump does what a lot of people on my side of the aisle, a lot of people on the right have cheered, but is really not smart legally. As a lawyer, okay, putting on my lawyer hat, this is dumb, dumb, the dumb, 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 okay, he's really not smart. Here is what he tweeted, quote, I am being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director. Witch hunt. Okay, so witch hunt has become the new fake news for President Trump. Uh, it's become the new rigged for President Trump. Witch hunt is just a term that he likes to throw out there. Again, I said yesterday, I think this is sort of a witch hunt. I'm not sure there's any there there. But President Trump says three things in this tweet that are really quite stupid. Number one, he says that he is being investigated. Okay, that was not confirmed. It was unconfirmed. And Rod Rosenstein put out a press release yesterday saying, don't believe anonymous leaks. And then Trump goes on the record on Twitter, which is considered a presidential statement, and he confirms that he is under investigation by Mueller. So stupid. So dumb. Why would you... You sent out your deputy attorney general to say don't pay attention to the anonymous sources, and then you go ahead and give credibility to the anonymous sources? Okay, that's stupid thing number one. Okay, stupid thing number two. It says that Rosenstein is some, presumably he's referring to Rosenstein here, right? The man who told me to fire the FBI director, that would have to be Rod Rosenstein who wrote the memo, right? So he's saying that Rosenstein is somehow responsible for firing James Comey. He said, oh, he told me to fire Comey. You said on national TV, Mr. President, that you would not have paid attention to Rosenstein even if he had said differently. Trump openly is contradicting himself here. Either he doesn't remember it or he doesn't care. That's dumb. It undercuts credibility. But the stupidest thing of all is it sounds from this tweet like President Trump is now holding Rosenstein responsible for the Mueller investigation, right? I'll read it again. I am being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director. Okay, Rosenstein is not actually the guy who's investigating him for firing the FBI director. That would be Mueller. But Mueller is a special counsel appointed by Rosenstein and can be fired by Rosenstein. So it sounds like Trump is now angry at Rosenstein for not firing Mueller. It sounds like Trump wants Rosenstein to fire Mueller and, and Rosenstein won't do it. And Rosenstein won't do it. Okay, this is so not smart because now you have what the left is going to claim, rightly or wrongly, is double obstruction. That President Trump fired Comey because he didn't want Comey investigating Flynn, and now he's pressuring Rosenstein to fire Mueller because he doesn't want Mueller investigating him firing, firing Comey. It's just, and now the predictable legal result of this is that Rosenstein is going to have to recuse himself from the Trump-Russia investigation because now he's a witness in that investigation thanks to President Trump. So now we've had Sessions, who's recused himself from Trump-Russia because he was involved with the Trump campaign. Rosenstein is going to have to recuse himself, at least on the obstruction issues, because President Trump made him involved in the firing of James Comey. So now we are, now to, we are down to the number three person at the DOJ who is now, quote-unquote, in charge of the investigation. And maybe the grand plan here is to get every single person in the federal government to have a conflict so they all have to recuse themselves and then the investigation dies. But unless that's the plan, none of this makes a lot of sense. If you want Trump to succeed for the one millionth time, if you want Trump to succeed, if you want his approval rating to go up, please, somebody in the White House, tell him to stop tweeting. My, my, uh, my bodyguard told me the other day that he had a great idea. I do think that it is a great idea. Uh, and the, the great idea is that we should construct for President Trump a fake Twitter app that exists only on his phone and has fake replies sent back to his phone and has fake numbers of retweets and likes sent back to his phone. So he tweets basically to a closed loop that automates back the response. And 
he's happy because he feels like he's venting and he's reached his catharsis and nobody outside the White House ever knows what he tweeted. Can you imagine how much more successful this presidency would be if he were not tweeting? I'm not talking about the campaign anymore. Twitter was useful for his campaign. But can you imagine if he had not tweeted about wiretapping? Can you imagine if he had not tweeted about Comey? Can you imagine if he had not tweeted about having tapes? Can you imagine if he weren't tweeting right now? Okay, all of this is distracting and stupid. He's in the middle of a Trump care push that is vital for his presidency. He's in the middle of a tax reform push that is vital for his presidency. He just released news, as I said at the top of the show, that is really damaging to him with his base if people are willing to pay attention, which apparently they're not. Breitbart and Drudge and Fox News have largely ignored so far the news that Trump just re-enshrined DACA. I'm old enough to remember when DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, was a terrible thing, according to conservatives, because not only did it violate the executive's authority, not only did it go over what the executive is allowed to do, but also it created a blanket amnesty status for people who are brought in here as illegal immigrant children. Trump just came out and his Homeland Security Secretary just greenlit the entire Obama program. Now more than ever, President Trump needs to be very pointed in his message. He needs to be very concerted in his message. And he is not doing that, and that is just a mistake. It is just a mistake. Because again, if he would just be quiet, this would probably all go away. Kenneth Starr, who is this, the in, independent counsel who is investigating President Clinton, he says there's no obstruction case here. Investigation seems to have widened, not just Russia meddling, not just possible collusion, but whether or not president engaged in some sort of obstruction of justice involving pressing James Comey to back off Michael Flynn, etc. Do you think there's a case there? It's too soon to tell. Uh, from what I have seen, and of course we don't know a whole lot, uh, the answer is no. Uh, but it is going to be investigated, and uh, so we will soon know. Obstruction of justice is really a very hard crime to make out. It, it's not just you want the investigation to go away. You suggest that the investigation goes away. You've got to take really affirmative action. Uh, and Director Comey said in his testimony that even though the expression was hope, he took it as a directive. But what we know is he didn't do anything about it, right? That is, he did not dismiss the investigation or curtail the investigation. There's an expression of, of, of hope. So Okay, so Starr is right, and this should be the defense. Again, there are lots of people out there willing to defend you on this, President Trump. I wrote a piece two days ago talking about why you have not obstructed technically under the rules of the federal government. Why, why, why won't you just stop? Okay, we're going to do the thing I like and then a thing I hate, and then we'll get to a very solid mailbag because my dad's going to stop by, which is awesome. I love my dad. He's awesome. Okay, so things I like. Let's do it. So the greatest thing that I like is that Elizabeth Banks, who is this far-left actress who was a big Hillary Clinton supporter, she was very, very angry at Steven Spielberg. At the Women in Film Awards, she referred to Steven Spielberg, and she said that Steven Spielberg had never had a film where a woman was the lead. Okay, there was. It was a film called The Color Purple. It won some Oscars, and it was about a black woman, actually. So it hit two of the left, uh, two of the left's favorite categories. She had to issue a full-scale apology, said, I messed up. When referring to Steven Spielberg at the Women in Film Awards, I framed my comments about his films inaccurately. I want to be clear from the start. I take full responsibility for what I said, and I'm sorry. When I made the comments, I was thinking of recent films Steven directed. It was not my intention to dismiss the import of the iconic The Color Purple. I made things worse by giving the impression I was dismissing Sherry Belafonte when she attempted to correct me. I spoke with Sherry backstage. She was kind enough to forgive me. I'm very sorry. Okay. I'm glad she's sorry. I also think that it is just ridiculous and absurd that we are supposed to gauge directors based on did they cast enough of this particular group of people in a particular film. It's just super dumb, okay? 
a good movie is a good film. When Spielberg made Indiana Jones, it didn't have to be called Indiana Rebecca Jones and be starring a female. It didn't have to be Tomb Raider. Okay, there's a Tomb Raider movie. It's not very good. Indiana Jones is a really good movie. I am very much in favor of the notion that we ought to have films that are good, not based on the identity of the character. Wonder Woman, really great film because the character is great. If it were called Wonder Man, it would not be nearly as good. Okay, but that's because her femininity and her femaleness is the central issue of the picture. So it's, it's just this stupid affirmative action notion that Steven Spielberg has to direct films about women or he somehow hurt women is just... It's really dumb and, and really annoying. Okay, other things that I hate. So CNN, and we don't have the clip of this, but CNN did some coverage yesterday of the congressional baseball game. And there was a prayer at second base where all of the Congress people of both parties went out there and prayed for Steve Scalise, who's still in critical condition after the congressional shooting earlier this week. And CNN headlined it by saying Democrats gathered at second base to, to pray for Steve Scalise. Just ridiculous. There's no reason to get partisan over this thing. It was both parties. Everybody knew it was both parties. Really, really stupid. Uh, so shame on CNN for that. Okay, time for a thing I hate, and then we will get to the mailbag. So things I hate. All right, so Alex Jones has, uh, has now released a recording of Megyn Kelly. One of the things that's weird about, na- about national TV is when you announce an interview with somebody, the internet can now defeat the interview because... If that person has independent tape of the interview, it is quite possible for that person to release the tape early. And that's what Alex Jones is doing. So the so NBC News is handling this in a very dumb way. They should just release the interview early to scoop Jones. Jones is threatening to scoop Kelly. And he's released this interview audio in an attempt to show that Megyn Kelly is not what she seems to be. Here's the tape purportedly of Jones talking to Megyn Kelly and Kelly assuring Jones that she would treat him fairly. All I can do is give you my word and tell you I, if there's one thing about me, I do what I say I'm going to do, and I, I don't double-cross, so... You know, you just became very fascinating to me. I just sort of thought you were this maybe, you know, one-dimensional guy, like this is your thing. My goal is for your listeners and the left, you know, who will be watching some on NBC to say, wow, that was really interesting. And then the next time I want to get somebody, they're going to say, look what you did to Alex Jones. It's not going to be some gotcha hit piece. I promise you that. Coming out tonight, later this evening. I've never done this in 22 years. I've never recorded another journalist. I've never done this, but I knew it was a fraud. I knew it was a lie. God, she was like, I want to get steaks with you. I'm obsessed with you. Oh, my God, wheeling around, you know, on her seat. It was all crap. And I knew it was all a lie. I said, Sandy Hook happened everything she wouldn't even put in the promo pieces and so we're going to release oh yeah we're going to release the pre-interview and then when they put their fraud out on sunday which i've asked them not to air because they're misrepresenting who i am and, and, and saying i'm as bad as saddam hussein or or, or jeffrey dahmer or uh god you know uh, uh, charles manson i mean it's crazy we're we've got the whole interviews here when she was here from 9.30 in the morning until 11 at night, we got it all. And so you're going to hear what I actually okay, said. Okay, so a couple of things. So so what, what I find what hilarious cut- about this is that Alex Jones, what he's actually doing, is pretty smart. What he's actually doing is he's trying to imply that Alex Jones is actually the the bad guy here. He's trying to say Kelly treated Alex Jones too nicely, and that's why people should be angry at Megyn Kelly. That's what he's playing in those that little clip there. I just want to point out, this is what every interviewer ever does, okay? <laughs> like, let's just be real about how journalism works. Whenever you call somebody up to interview them, you don't say, listen, I'm going to ask you a series of really aggressive questions that make you look bad. Okay, that's, that's why those of us in the interview business do research on the people who are interviewing us. 
And I'm sure that Megyn Kelly, you know, asked him some questions that were nicer. I'm sure those were probably not the most newsworthy segments of the interview. Um, but everybody's going nuts over this whole thing. Alex Jones is a newsworthy figure. I talked about this earlier this week. Again, this is not just defending Megyn Kelly. I like Megyn. I'm friendly with Megyn. But this, I, I would be defending anybody on these grounds. I don't think that this is, I, I really don't think this is newsworthy. I don't think that Megyn did anything wildly wrong here, and it kind of annoys me. Uh, okay, uh, let, you know what, let's, uh, let's do one more thing I hate, and then we will do the mailbag. So one more thing I hate, Kellyanne Conway, uh, the, just to reiterate my message, that it's a mistake for Republicans to box themselves into the stupidity of free speech is bad because it causes violence. Here's Kellyanne Conway making that case yesterday. I went back and looked at exactly what was being discussed on all the TV shows except yours at 7 or 9 a.m. on Wednesday when this happened. And it's a really curious exercise because as C. Scalise was fighting for his life and crawling into right field in a trail of blood, you should go back and see what people were saying about the president and the Republicans at that very moment. Of course, they had a break in with the news of this tragedy. And since then, there's been some introspection, some Okay, I hate this stuff. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Kellyanne Conway, when she does this routine where she suggests the typical rhetoric on CNN is responsible for a guy shooting Steve Scalise, the people at Fox News who are not along with this, they have to understand that the next time a shooting goes the other way, and the next time a nutcase who supposedly identifies with the right goes out and shoots somebody, this is the exact conversation that's going to be had on CNN. Okay, we can just keep playing this game. We flip back and forth, or we can recognize the typical political rhetoric is just that. It is typical political rhetoric. It is not responsible for violence unless you are advocating violence. Okay, it's time for the mailbag. I'm very excited to introduce my dad. Dad, welcome to the show. Um, I'm very grateful you decided to have me as your child. So uh, let's. <laughs> so uh, we can uh, we can jump right into the mailbag. Lots of questions for you. A lot of people asking questions for my dad today. Okay, McGuire asks. Dear Mr. Shapiro, what do you think is the best lesson that baseball can teach our society morally, socially, and or politically? Thanks from a huge fan. Why don't you give your answer to that one, then I have an answer for that one as well. Well, we talked about this in the beginning of the book, um, in the beginning of our book, where we talked, I talked about um, how baseball moves at the speed of life. Uh, unlike the other sports, there's no clock that runs out at any time. You don't know when it's going to run out. Um, and so... Because of that, um, I think it teaches patience. And I think that's something that's sadly lacking in, in every way um, in the political and in almost every sphere is that people are in a rush. And I'm, my own personal belief is that that has stemmed from a lack of faith in God. Yeah, I mean, uh, I tend to agree with my father, so my father speaks for me, yeah. um, but, is it, but I tend to agree with my dad on all this stuff, which is why uh, we get along really well. Uh, the only things that I would add as far as baseball and its values for life is not only the speed of the game, but also, like most sports, it's a meritocracy, so there's no affirmative action in baseball. If you're good at it, you're good at it. If you're bad at it, then you don't make the majors. And also, there is a bounce-back mentality. Unlike all the, most of the other sports, it's played daily. So you lose one day, you win the next, and that means that you'd better get back up on your feet if something bad happens, and uh, if you don't take that lesson to heart, you're going to have a pretty miserable life. Okay, here is another question. Uh, April asks, Hi, Ben. I have a question for your dad. What should we tell our smart kids when they are being bullied? Oh, uh, there are a lot of options here. Um, one is obviously to try and fight back, but very often that's not the case. I, I hate bullying because I hate anything that um, does not protect the innocence of children. I hate when the innocence of children is violated. Um, so one is to fight back, as in the movie My Bodyguard, you know, that yeah. movie, which is great. The original <laughs> yeah, with our friend movie. Adam Baldwin, yeah. yeah. That's right, great movie. Um, the other is have your father intervene, as I have done. Um, 
Yeah, it's a, that's, a, that's a really good story. Uh, I think I've told that story on the air. Uh, for, for those who don't know this story, I was really badly bullied in high school. And I was two years younger, and I hadn't hit my growth spurt. Uh, and yes, Trumpkins, I actually am 5'9", but this is when I was like five. He is 5'9". Uh, I was actually I'm five. I'm six feet. He's, he's three inches shorter. Okay, so I was like five, I was maybe five foot one, and I was maybe 115, 120 pounds. And there were a bunch of bigger kids who were picking on me, uh, and physically hitting me, bullying me. Uh, and it was pretty brutal. And my dad actually came into the, and the administration wouldn't do anything about it because it was a private school, and the kids' parents were rich. Uh, we weren't as wealthy, so they didn't want to actually do anything about it. So my dad called a meeting with the kids, and with the principals and actually turned to the kids and said, listen, my son is smaller than you, but I am your size. And some of these kids were pretty big. He said, I'm your size and I'm willing to take you out in the parking lot and I will one fight you time. one by one. And I also have a ball peen hammer in the trunk of my car. And if you go down, you're not getting back up. <laughs> and that was pretty much the end of, of that particular problem. Yeah, so. I said, if you ever touch a hair on his head again, you know, you, do, you don't want to be looking behind you. Yeah, and with, 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 uh, with now having my own two kids, I feel exactly But there the are same some way. cases where you can't do that, where, and some cases where the school will not protect the child. In that case, you need to find another school for your child. If the school's not going to do its job, if the school's not going to protect your child, then get the child the heck out of there and find some place where they will. All righty. Gary says, Hi, Ben. My mother has recently informed me of my family heritage may... Uh, may include Jewish descent. I have no idea if this is accurate or how it affects my current belief system. I'm a Christian that has accepted Christ as my risen savior. Do I have an obligation to seek out what this possible heritage link is? Is ignorance, bliss, and religion? So from a Jewish perspective, you do have an obligation. This one isn't really for my dad, but uh, from a Jewish perspective, uh, you do have an obligation to check out your Jewish heritage because if you are, if you are um, Jewish technically, then under Judaism, you are still Jewish even if you've accepted another religion. So according to Judaism, Andrew Clavin is still Jewish even though Andrew is converted to Christianity. You know, from a, from a general non-Jewish kind of secularist perspective, it's a free country, you can do whatever you want. Uh, from a moral perspective, I always think that you should think through your beliefs in the best possible way, which is why, you know, I've studied Christianity and why I've looked at Buddhism and why I look at Islam and why I think that it's important to know a lot about other religions so you know what you believe and believe what you believe. Okay, Diana says, question to Ben's dad. What did you guys talk about at the dinner table when Ben was 10? Couldn't it be politics, law, policies, or could it? And she's looking for some parenting advice. Um, we talked about everything. One of the rules I had was that I never thought that I had all the answers. So I was, you remember, I would ask friends of mine who were very intelligent people over, they'd be over for dinner, and I'd encourage you to ask questions of them. Um, because they were more expert in certain areas than I was, although we talked about everything. We talked about politics, we talked about music, classical music, we talked about sports a lot. Um, the, this is part of an essential lesson, I think, and that is that it is imperative that parents take their child's questions seriously. I always took your questions seriously, and your sister's, and your questions seriously, and I think that's vital. I think it's vital so that the child feels respected. And no matter what the question is, it may seem silly to you, but it's not silly to them. And I think that's really important. Okay, so here's another one. This is a live mailbag question from Emmanuel. Papa Shapiro, when did you realize you had such a special kid in Ben? I have to read that because it says I'm special. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, be, <laughs> so when did you realize that I was so awesome? Dad? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, when you were three days old, actually. <laughs> um, um, because while our children were C-section babies, you were the first. Uh, mommy came home when you were three days old, and they put you, we put you on the table, and you were staring up the light. And I said to Mommy, either he's brain damaged or he's a genius. I'm not sure which. Um, <laughs> we still don't know. Yeah, <laughs> the jury's still out. Um, but there were certain things that you were doing very early on. You were very articulate. You were very rational. Can I tell the vacuum cleaner story? Sure. Okay. Very quickly, um, my, my wife was 
vacuuming in one room, and Ben was about two, and she called for me, David, and I came in, and, and she, Ben was standing on the vacuum cleaner and would not get off. And I said, Ben, if you don't get off the vacuum cleaner, it's going to break. And if it breaks, I don't know how to fix it, which means I'm going to have to hire somebody, which means I'm going to have to pay them, which means if I pay them, I won't have enough money to take us all to Disneyland. You understand the consequences of, of all the things, you're, of what you're doing, and how we won't be able to go to Disneyland? He was off in a heartbeat. And I realized at that point that you were just rational, that I could be very rational with you. My daughter's even smarter than this. She, she was doing the same thing, and I said the same thing to her, and she said, just buy a new vacuum. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Difference between daughters and sons. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ricky says to Ben's dad, what do you and Ben have the most in common? So I have an answer for this one also, but you, you go ahead. Okay, this goes to something I was, I, I'm, it's very important to me, and that is loyalty. Um, um, I'm sure everybody knows this for people who follow Ben, but the bottom line is he's very loyal, very as I am, to God, to the truth, to America, to the Jewish people, to his family. Um, it's about loyalty and never backing off on that. Um, loyalty to me means everything, to all those things. I mean, it's like truth, justice, and the American way, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, is there anything better than that? No, I mean, you know, God is behind all of that. God has to be behind all of that. But truth, justice, and the American way, being loyal to those things. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that we, we basically have the same answer. I mean, you can see my dad is a very passionate guy, and, and that's where I got it. So uh, that, that's definitely what we have most in common, aside from our love for the White Sox. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, which, is, which definitely ranks high on the list. Okay, uh, David says, uh, David and Ben, I have my first child on the way. I know the intellect is inherited as well as shaped. Do you have any recommendations for intellectual stimulation of children prior to formal schooling? It seems like you did fairly well with Ben. Yeah, well, you know, you, I remember when you were three, we sat on the driveway and I took some chalk and you, you were drawing the letters with the chalk um, so I could, you could learn the letters and you learned to read very early, very early on. Um, and I think that was primarily, I think that was the primary um, thing that, that I focused on was helping you learn to read and all your, and your sisters too. Learn, reading is everything. Reading is everything. I mean, you know, you took that that adage that John, John Quincy Adams, was it John Adams told John Quincy Adams? Yeah. Um, never, 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 never leave home without a poet in your pocket. Right. You know, so I don't like poetry, so it's a, so, a book, but yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very funny thing. We were sitting at dinner one night recently and, um, and I, there's a scene in Godfather part three where, where Michael Corleone is, he's furious because he's trying to get out of being in the mob and there are some murders and he says, they're dragging me back. It's a very famous scene. They're dragging me back in. And one night we're sitting at dinner and Ben happened to be reading a book and I said, Ben, he said, nothing. Ben, nothing. I turned to him, I said, you know, this is like Michael Corleone with, the, you know, you and the book. You're trying to drag me into a conversation. I'm reading here. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, I realize how irritating I am because my daughter actually does the exact same yep. thing. She's, yep. she's, she has a central focus yep. and she will not be budged <laughs> from her central focus. It drives her mom nuts. So there's that. Okay, final question here from Dakota. Hi, Ben. My question is for your father and yourself. I've heard you mention in the past that your family wasn't always orthodox. So, Mr. Shapiro, what were some of the driving forces behind you deciding to become orthodox? And Ben, how much of an impact did that have on shaping your outlook on social life and your political views? So you first. What made our family orthodox? And then I'll talk about how that sort of shaped my That goes back to loyalty. That goes back to, uh, you know, I, I feel it's incumbent, as a Jew, I feel it's incumbent on me to be loyal to all of my ancestors who kept this enormously important thing alive. Um, I owe that to them. They lived and died. Some of them died in painful ways to keep this alive. And so when I was growing up, I, even though I wasn't religious, I looked at Jews who were religious, and I thought, 
okay, they're doing it right. I may not be doing it, but they're doing it right, and I want to get there someday. I want to be able to pay homage to my ancestors and to God by, by, doing it, do, by practicing Judaism authentically, by practicing it authentically. And I think that that's actually translated for me in terms of I believe that people who are orthodox in Christianity or orthodox in Judaism uh, or authentically, you know, deeply patriotic about the Constitution of the United States, they're keeping alive a, a heritage, a Judeo-Christian heritage, that is vital to keep alive. And so orthodoxy for me has meant every day, every action I take is supposed to be a living testament to the God who bequeathed us a Judeo-Christian value system that has allowed a country like America to rise to the top of the world and remain there. And the minute that we lose that, then we lose everything. So I think that us living in that way uh, is, is what has allowed America to become great and will allow America to remain great. And if you don't think it's that great right now, allow it to become great again. Yeah, I used to say to all you guys growing up, there, there's two phrases uh, that Jews, religious Jews use. They'll say something's a Kiddush Hashem, something's a Chilol Hashem. A Kiddush Hashem is something that sanctifies God's name. A Chilol Hashem is something that desecrates God's name. And I said, remember, every action you take, and you're not always going to, not, not always do it right, but every action you take is one of those two things. Either sanctifying God's name or you're desecrating God's name. So be conscious of what you're doing when you're out there. Well, Dad, I love you, and uh, this is uh, this is the book that if you, if you want to buy a copy oh, of We didn't even talk about the White Sox. I wrote, we didn't even talk about the White Sox, but if you want to read about the White Sox, then you can read about the White Sox here because this is everything you would ever need to know about the only season that matters in human history. Uh, 2005, when the White Sox won the World Series, a book by me and my pops, uh, and you can get that over at dailywire.com when you become an annual subscriber. You can get it signed by me, uh, or you can get it at amazon.com right now. Uh, Dad, I love you. Thanks for coming on the show. And, uh, and everybody, we will be back here on Monday. Have a wonderful Father's Day. I hope that uh, you have the relationship with your dad that I have with mine. If not, go fix it and make it that way. Uh, have a great Father's Day, and we will see you on Monday. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.